Hi, I'm Bill Mitchell, host of When Dating Hurts. Two years ago, I launched my Dating Violence podcast. Back then, I knew very little about recording, editing, or uploading to a hosting platform. Frankly, I didn't know what a hosting platform meant. When recording episodes, I needed it to be easy for me and my guests. You see, I was capturing highly emotional personal stories, and I couldn't have guests fiddling around, clicking buttons, starting and stopping over and over again. I launched with Zencaster, and I stayed with them. The reason is, it's just so darn easy. And today's Zencaster lets you record with high-quality audio and video. You can edit and distribute, too, all in one place. No more bouncing around from one platform to another to create your podcast. So if you're interested, go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code when dating hurts, all one word, and you'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. Isn't it time to tell your story? I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. Mikkel Becker appeared on the When Dating Hurts podcast in an earlier episode. Mikkel is a survivor of marital abuse that pushed her to her limits. She and I have stayed in touch. Weeks after our interview, Mikkel and I discussed the possibility of her recording her stream of thoughts, looking back at relationships that went horribly bad. Instead of using the real names of her abusive husbands, she used these names, Kylo Ren, and Voldemort. They are not random names that she made up. They are names from movies. Kylo Ren was a Star Wars antagonist, and Voldemort was the archenemy of Harry Potter. The following are Mikkel Becker's flow of thoughts about some of the darkest days of her life. So back in the day when I was in the relationships with Voldemort and Kylo Ren, I remember thinking, in some ways I wished... And this sounds really sick, I know, but I honestly at times wish that they would just hit me because that for me would mean more of a green light, like, okay, it's it, that's the time to get out. Like, now it's time to get out. And so in some ways it was so rough where it was, a lot of it was emotional abuse and mental abuse that I just felt like if it went into the physical, that would make it more cut and dry. Like I would know for sure that this wasn't going to work because at that point they've really crossed the line and, you know, it's over and done with. But when I look back and as I was even listening back to my conversation with you, Bill, on the different elements of, of that relationship, those relationships and how they started to go into the physical, including like trying to terrify me in the car and make me feel like I was going to die in there. And with Kylo Ren, the time he pushed me, and I didn't mention how bad that was. I, I literally fell across the the room. Like I probably flew about 10 feet and uh, hit my head. And I actually had bruises uh, up and down like my back and stuff and my legs from it. Like I hit so hard and was pushed so hard. But when I think back and I thought, God, why didn't I get out in those two situations? So both the car incidents as well as with Voldemort hitting my dog or with Kylo Ren pushing me that time, like how did I not know at that point? Like it actually had become physical, but I didn't even realize it. And I think that is like the, the toxic part of those relationships is that it is so, it's insidious. You don't realize it's the slow crawl to your death basically with these people. And you don't realize what's happening. And they've actually trained you to not realize what's happening. With Kylo Ren, when he pushed me, I actually doubted, did he actually push me? You know, is it what he said? Did he, I just like, like run into him so hard when he was blocking the doorway that then I fell over and 
I was so confused. Like I was just, it's like the state of confusion. And I think that is the hallmark of those relationships is you are in a perpetual state of confusion and you learn to doubt yourself. You learn to doubt your own instincts and even your own sanity in these situations. And so I, I thought, God, did that actually happen? Like, I know looking back, like, I know he did push me and I know I fell. But then at the time, I honest to God, I was like doubting, did that really happen? Because I had grown to like disbelieve myself all the time, like from things of being called all the time that I'm stupid and I don't know what the F I'm talking about. And, you know, I, I am the one that's abusing him. I'm the one that doesn't care about his emotions and his well-being. And I'm so selfish. And my God, it is just like this whirlwind of confusion and chaos and disturbance. And once you get out of that and you get in these healthy relationships with people and you get away and you get by yourself, you realize, my God, that wasn't even me. None of that was me. That's not even who I am. It's like all of that confusion, that chaos, that disturbance, that unrest, that just disturbance of your very soul it's it's not even you. It's it is this situation that they have brought you to and they've entrapped you in. And it is it's such a slow slide. It's like getting stuck in quicksand and you're slowly sinking and you don't realize it until it's too late and it becomes harder and harder to get out the longer that you stay in it. So as much as I think back on that situation and I think I, I remember thinking I, I wish that they would hit me. I wish that they would do that. But I th- I think I know looking back that it would have gotten to that point, but probably what would have happened is it would have been a slow decline into that. So that's where those initial threats of violence starting to condition things like I like Kylo Ren would say things like, Everyone deserves a good hit, one good hit in a marriage. And I would say, Well, I would never do that to you. I would never hit you. And and he would like say it like he's joking, but he's not joking. Like he would say that all the time. And he was starting to prepare me, I think, for that point that he was going to hit me and it had escalated to everything but that. And just this total disrespect of boundaries because at that point I'd already told him he can't block my exits, he needs to let me leave, but obviously he wasn't doing that. And and in those situations, he was still breaking through doors to come in and find me and hunt me down like I couldn't get away from him. So I think that in those situations, for anyone who's in that situation like me, where you are like waiting and thinking, okay, once it escalates to that point, like that's a no-go, just don't even go there. Because if you are already feeling this disturbance and this unrest and this just constant discord within yourself and with this person, like it is not healthy and you don't need to wait for it to escalate. And if you do wait for it to escalate, like I was doing, it's going to be so slow and it's going to happen in such a way that you even doubt that it happened. Like you're going to doubt yourself. Did that really happen? Did they really swerve into traffic? Did he, he really stop on this bridge and like not leave until I cried and said I was sorry, even though I wasn't sorry. Like, did that actually happen? You'll start to doubt yourself. And and then you get ever more stuck. So I would just say absolutely trust your own intuition and just remember you don't need to wait for it to escalate to any certain point to get out. You need to trust yourself and trust your own intuition because that's what's really going to save you from men like these. The When Dating Hurts podcast is supported by BlendJet. Big bulky blenders are a real pain to use, but the BlendJet 2 blender makes blending a snap. I'm using mine several times a day. Convenience is the reason why. The BlendJet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It can fit into your cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. And BlendJet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. BlendJet lasts for 15 or more blends and recharges quickly via USB-C. Best of all, BlendJet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. With over 30 plus colors and patterns to choose from, there's a BlendJet 2 to complement any style. Blend anytime, anywhere with the BlendJet 2 Portable Blender. Seriously, what are you waiting for? No other blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the BlendJet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Head to BlendJet.com and use the promo code WHENDATINGHURTS12 for your 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. That's BlendJet.
as I listen to so many different survivors and I listen back to myself as well, the common theme seems to be that all of us are caring people, very empathetic, and have these high moral standards for ourselves. So whether it's through your faith, through your own upbringing, or perhaps like for you getting this own moral code of like, you know, that was what I experienced. That was horrible. I'm never going to be that way. This is how I'm going to be. So you have these high standards for yourself. And I think for all of us, because of that, that is something that the abuser actually ends up using against us because they keep us in these situations because we are so forgiving and we have this high moral code where we want to do right. We want to leave people better off because we've been in their lives. We want to do what's right and do what's good and do what's reasonable. And just a a common example would be in the situation of even breaking up with someone. So common knowledge says you don't break up with someone over text. You don't break up with them over a phone call. It's better to meet with them in person. But as we unfortunately know, and from hearing those horror stories, that is not the right way with an abuser. Because the problem is, is that that is what's going to put you in direct danger is being next to them, being in physical proximity to them. And once they get you alone and isolated, that's when things can turn really bad. So in that situation, even though we know in a typical relationship with a typical person, yeah, that that might be the, the honorable way to break up with them. But with someone that's like this, that is so dangerous to, to let them get into your orb to get in where they can be at you physically. That is so dangerous and and also dangerous in the way that we can more easily fall into their spell, I think as well, because they are so good at having this whole gameplay and it's almost like a drug. Like I I know for myself, like I've never been addicted to drugs or addicted to alcohol, but I do think, and honest to God, I really do believe that in some ways I've been addicted to toxic relationships because I've been addicted to that high, that high that happens during that idealization phase where you are everything to them. They are love bombing you. You are perfect. You are so special. You have all of these things. Perhaps you're treated in a way that you've never been treated. They, they find those insecurities, even though you don't speak them out loud, even they can hunt those out. They are like this, like search and rescue dog. And they are like just innately wired to hunt down your insecurities, your deepest fears and hunt down exactly what you need, which is what they become. But then they start to pull that away more and more. And so you're just like more and more desperate for that drug. You have to have that drug. And it's actually interesting. So I was listening to another podcast, Ex-Wives Undercover, and it was really a cool analogy and so true that there was a study that looked at rats and it looked at their addiction to cocaine. And so they had one rat who could, whenever he pressed this lever, he could get the cocaine whenever he wanted. And the other rat, whenever he pressed the lever, sometimes he would get cocaine, but sometimes nothing would happen. And what happened was that the rat who could get cocaine every single time that he pressed the lever, he kind of became less interested in it. It was like, eh, yeah, I, I could take it or leave it. Like, you know, even though he pressed it a lot in the beginning, later on it started to taper off because he always got cocaine and it wasn't that big of a deal. So that's that continuous uh, continuous reinforcement. Uh, so that is that predictable reinforcement. Every time you press this, you are always going to get that cocaine. You're always going to get that head of drug. However, in the other situation with the rat who didn't always get cocaine, but sometimes nothing would happen, he became more and more addicted to this drug and to pressing that lever. And he would press that lever at the expense of all of his other functions. So whether it was eating, sleeping, drinking, all of those things that he needed to survive, he would forego those things just for that chance, that off chance that he might be able to get that cocaine. What it is is called an intermittent schedule of reinforcement. So the rat doesn't get it all the time, but they might get it sometimes. So it's that same high that we get when we're gambling, when you know we're at the horse races, we are you know betting on something, we are at the casino and we're betting, and, or we're playing blackjack, like that high that you get with not knowing what hand you're going to be dealt, with not knowing if you might win, that is far more intoxicating and far more addictive than it is to know that you're going to get it every single time. 
And so the way that this really plays into our relationships as survivors is that sometimes that person who does give you that reinforcement all the time, it feels so good, but it also it's so predictable. So I think in relationships, like I know with my boyfriend, Chris, now, who's incredible, I've learned through through him and with another good relationship that I had before him to really hold on to those times, even when it feels boring, because it's going to feel boring. You've been addicted to this like crazy, crazy high, high, and then these low lows. And so once you get that drug back and that person has been gone for a while, or they haven't been reinforcing you, when they do reinforce you, oh my God, it feels so good. It's this relief and just like this exhilaration that it's back. And so you get like these crazy highs that you wouldn't normally get in a normal relationship. So for me, that's always a really big red flag. If I am feeling this like crazy high or this addictive part of me kind of kicks in and I'm like really just thinking about them all the time or texting them all the time or those those are big warning signs for me. Like what I'm after now and what I have now with my boyfriend is more of that constant secure love, which is not going to feel so addictive. It's not going to feel so intoxicating, but it's steady and it's true and it's honest. And you realize over time, like, wow, this really is it. Like, this is the way that I want to live. Once you've had that other kind of love that you find actually is a real type of love, that intoxicating love that what actually is a false love, it starts to fade away. But it's so important to be aware of, the, of that fact that those, those people, those narcissists, those psychopaths, sociopaths that come in and they love bomb like crazy and they bring in that crazy love and they just reinforce and love every single thing about you. And then all of a sudden you get that cognitive dissonance because they start to say things like, oh, gosh, yeah, like that. that is kind of weird how you dress today. Or, God, yeah, you look so, yeah, like I don't know about that. Or are you sure you really want to wear that? Or, yeah, God, you used to look so pretty. Look how pretty you were there. They'll say these little things that make you think, oh, God, like do I not look as pretty? Or they'll start to compare you to other people in, in very subtle, subliminal ways. So it'll be like, wow, God, yeah, she looked really good. Like that dress is like banging on her. And you'll be like, oh, okay, well, I'm glad that you noticed. And and they'll say things like where they start to like subtly make you jealous in a way that you've never even been jealous before. And all of a sudden this like insane jealousy overtakes you in this competition, which of course people like that, they love, love to have you jealous. They love to have you in competition with others. And that way you're in competition for their affection, for their love. And for that love and that affection that was yours from the very beginning, that was yours to... to to have supposedly because of the way that they made you feel you felt like that was inherent to you but then you realize it's a very conditional love and it's taken away and a lot of times it it is it's unpredictable but be aware that that intermittent uh, uh, reinforcement so that reinforcement that doesn't come every single time or it's hit or miss that is going to be extremely extremely addictive and so just being aware of that can be very helpful for you in your own healing journey going forward and realizing that you really have to learn to affirm yourself and to have that value within yourself because otherwise people like that will really prey upon those insecurities, prey upon any part of you that feels like you're lesser than. That's exactly what they're going to go for. And they're going to go for it in a way where they make you feel so special and so wonderful. And oh my God, you're the best cook. Oh, you are just the best mother. All of these things that make you feel like, God, I am special. I've never felt this way about anybody else before. And then pretty soon that starts to be taken away, but you're so addicted to that drug at that point, you will do anything to get it. And they have you within their grasp and they can absolutely manipulate the heck out of you from there, especially if they've tricked you into falling in love with them. Because love is that strongest bond that we have. And it's a powerful tool that someone like that, who is a predator, will use against you. So being aware of that and having your own love and value for yourself is absolutely essential. So that way you aren't in that desperate state where you have to get that hit of that drug that that narcissist or psychopath, sociopath uh, happens to offer. The When Dating Hurts podcast is supported by Cure Hydration. The purpose of the When Dating Hurts podcast is for us to achieve healthier relationships in life. The purpose of Cure is to help achieve healthier hydration routines. Dehydration is the leading cause of daytime fatigue. Even mild dehydration can cause muscle weakness and brain fog. I feel it when I'm playing pickleball for hours and water doesn't do enough. I was excited when I discovered Cure. 
it's an electrolyte packet that hydrates just as effectively as an IV drip. Cure packets are convenient and easy to use. Just mix them with water, then drink. Pretty perfect when you're on the go, or traveling, or really anytime you need a fast hydration boost. Cure helps your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly, and Cure comes in a bunch of delicious flavors. Just mix Cure in 8 to 16 ounces of water, and you're good to go. Try Cure soon, and you'll feel the difference. Head to CureHydration.com, and when you check out, add my discount code, WhenDatingHurts1. All one word, no spaces, when dating hurts one. And you'll get 20% off your order of Cure. Cure hydration with Cure. One thing that I think that a lot of us share as empaths and people that are compassionate and so caring is that so much of the time we have these just high moral standards and these like codes of conduct for ourselves of right and wrong. And unfortunately, the narcissist, the sociopath, psychopath, just that toxic person, they are ultimately going to use that piece of you against you. So that part of you that is good, that part of you that does care, that part of you that wants to do what's right, they're going to use that in order to control you and to manipulate you. Because those certain codes that we have for ourselves and for our own conduct, so whether it is you know, something as simple as if I'm going to break up with someone, I'm going to break up with them in person versus over the phone or over email or over text, because we've learned that that's wrong to do that. Well, what happens is that, that a person like that will use a, a certain code of conduct, such as something as simple as that, that we we should be breaking up in person, and they'll use that to control us and to loop us back in. So it could be that guilt that, oh, my God, I can't believe that you broke up with me this way, so then they can talk bad about you, even though we know that breaking up not in person is probably the very best thing that you can do with someone like that, having a clean break, getting away from them, going no contact, where you are just completely off limits to them, they are off limits to you is the best thing to do. But they want to keep you within their wheel of control. They want to keep you looped in. They want to keep their little spider web of control over you. And so if they see you in person, it's going to be a lot easier to talk you back into being with them, to manipulate them back themselves back into your life. And also that's that time when that physical violence can so easily happen. And so I have a friend right now who's in a domestic violence situation. I'm trying to help her get out of it. And my my greatest advice is, you know, for her to be able to, when, when she knows that she's ready, when she's done, done, and isn't willing to put up with any, any more of what he's done and who he is in her life, it has to be a clean break. And because otherwise, it is so hard. You just are just kept in there. And it's so hard to ever get away. So in those situations, I just really encourage us all to just remember that just when we have those codes of conduct for ourselves, just be wise to the ways that maybe that person is using those moral codes that we have as a way to control and a way to manipulate us and a way to use us and to keep us controlled and under their spell. I think of that. So whether it is you know, a certain way that, that we need to break up with the person or giving them another chance. They said that they're really sorry. They're really sorry this time. I need to forgive. As as a Christian, for instance, you learn to, to turn the other cheek when the person slaps you. You learn to be subservient to your husband. You learn to submit to him. And these things that now, as a very evolved Christian, I realize are really ridiculously taken out of context and are misused so that you can be abused Instead, we need to really take those things that are our moral codes and realize like what ways that manipulator, that abuser may be using that against us and how that actually could end up being dangerous for us. I think of that, too, for myself, where I was so terrified to live with someone before marriage or I felt so guilty. It was like this ongoing guilt all the time, like condemnation, like I just felt so bad that I'm doing this and Oh, thank you, Jesus. I've come to a better place within myself, like where I live so much more freely and so much more just like effortlessly, like where I can be in this flow and not always feel so guilty. But at the time I did, I felt so guilty. And that guilt is what controlled me and what kept me in those relationships and got me into them in the first place, because I felt bad that I was like, you know, in my mind at the time, like living in sin and doing things that I shouldn't be doing outside of marriage. And I had this very 
conservative group of friends that I was surrounded by and, and a church family that was very conservative. So I always felt guilty all the time. And like, I was bad and I need to make it right. And I remember my mom and dad were talking to me after I divorced and the person, a person had asked them like, why did, why did Mikkel get into those relationships in the first place? Like, why did she just dive in? Like when those people like just pursued her and, and wooed her like, but why didn't she give it time? And my parents told them, well, it's because Mikkel felt really guilty. She felt guilty, like sleeping with someone before marriage. And so she tried to make it right by getting married. And that person was like, well, divorce is wrong, too. Like, divorce isn't right. So, you know, if you're thinking of it in a moral way, you know, and if you're being so legalistic like that, you can think of it like divorce isn't right. So the fact that you get into these relationships before you really get to know them, because it can feel so impossible to keep those high moral standards that you have for yourself. Well, you're going to get into another situation. You're going to feel guilty there, there, too. I mean, honestly, in those situations, it is. It's like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. I think even like when we are leaving a person, I know like for me when I was leaving Kyla Ren and even when I left Voldemort, they made, they both made me feel like, oh my God, you are the only person for me at so many different times. Like, I don't know what I will do without you. You are everything. I know Voldemort said like I was the you know, love of his life. He'll never love anyone ever again. And I still had to make that choice for, for my own well-being and for that of my daughter to get out. And lo and behold, he literally is living with someone two weeks after is with another girl, which I am so grateful for that because it took a lot of that pressure off of me and I was much more free. Just don't believe what they say. I, they will use anything that they can to try and keep you in there. And whether it's your sympathy for them, your care for them, your compassion, or it can be all kinds of things. It can be just just that part of like you you don't want to leave them alone or you feel bad or you feel like oh, I didn't do everything that I could have. And I think even that thought of like all of us, you know, think, OK, if I go through counseling, then it's going to get better. But I know in a lot of those situations, you know, vast majority, it's not going to work out. And sometimes you're actually keeping yourself in danger and in this emotional turmoil much longer than you need to. So I would just advise to get out and to do what you would advise your daughter, your very best friend that you care about so much, what you would advise them to do. And I think for me, the time that it actually hit me, so this right before I left Kyla Ren was I found this baby picture of myself and I was just so innocent in this picture. I was just sitting on a chair and I think maybe I had my little teddy with me and I just looked so cute. My little bow on is like right after I was born. And I just thought, I don't know, it just hit me. It was like this, 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 just this revelation where I was like, that girl, that, that is me. Like that is the girl that I'm saying that she can tolerate all this. She can put up with all of this. She's strong. She has to do this. And then I realized, no, I would never, ever put my own daughter, my best friend, I would never put that little girl in the picture who is me. I would never put her in the situation and in, in the hands of these abusive men. Never. There's no justification for that. And I think sometimes we forget our own value, our inherent value and our inherent worth. And we think that we just have to put up with these situations, but we don't. We don't have to. And so for me, that picture came right at the right time, right before the the big argument at the very end, the part that did us part. If you listen to the episode right, right before that was when I saw that baby picture of myself. And that gave me the courage even further that I needed to do what was right, not just for other people, but also do what's right for myself, because I had always put myself on the back burner. So I think for all of us, you know, in our own morals and our own moral code, our faith, whatever it might be, just be aware of of how maybe it's being used in a way that's going to manipulate and control you and keep you in these situations. And instead, we need to make those decisions that we know are right for us and, and right for those that we love. Like for my daughter, Reagan, I want to be able to be that example to her, to to show her like, no, we don't put up with men like this. We don't put up with that kind of abuse. And because we can say things, but our words don't matter nearly as much as our actions. So I know for her, it's been definitely and it, it, it's hard for me to say this, honestly, because I felt so much shame and blame on myself that like I ever brought her into those bad relationships. But Reagan just looks at me as this strong woman now, and she's proud of me for ending those relationships, for not going into those. And she is such a strong young woman at 13, already so wise. And so even though I regret those things that had happened, you know, I think so much of the time, even there, we are taking on the shame and this blame on ourselves for things that were done to us. We didn't do these things, but yet we take this crazy blame and shame on ourselves 
which is just so eye-opening to see after, like, wow, I'm taking all of this on myself, and this was done to me. I didn't even do this to myself, you know, and, and from then on, you know, in the future, we can be wiser to make those wiser decisions to protect ourselves, to be free of that that all-consuming guilt and shame that, that really, I mean, that's not even from God. Like, as a Christian, that's not even from God in the first place. You know, and as as a moral person, as a person that has these codes of conduct, yes, we should have those codes of conduct in certain situations. But with people that are abusive and toxic and dangerous, those codes do not apply. So I hope that that is encouraging. I know it's been something that's been on my heart lately, and I just wanted to share that. This When Dating Hurts episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Few of us are experts at keeping all the facets of our lives in a healthy balance. So often, we get pulled in all directions, and it leaves us feeling we're not doing a good job at anything. But sharing the complications you face with a therapist can bring you workable ways to sort it all out and to find clear new directions. You want to achieve the best version of you, and BetterHelp is here to help you find positive coping skills, set boundaries, and enjoy life. If you've ever thought about trying therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and will work within your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists anytime you want at no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WhenDatingHurts today and receive 10% off your first month. Find more balance with BetterHelp. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash WhenDatingHurts. I was just doing a radio interview on domestic violence, and one of the questions that was called in was, why did you stay with him? Like, why did you still love him? Why did you, you know, once you saw how he was, like, why did you stay? And I think for all of us, there are different answers and different reasons. You know, for me, I think there was that morality issue. Like, I felt like I had that idea back in the day that I don't believe in divorce, like this blanket statement that I always felt. And because I thought, uh, you know, whoever I'm going to be married to, I'm married to them for life. I felt like Voldemort was my soulmate because he had made himself to seem like this person that I would want as my soulmate. But once I was looped in and I had eloped with him, I was stuck. And I was also stuck because of, you know, the, the, basically the shame of the whole experience. I was shame, embarrassment. Oh my gosh, like how awful, how embarrassing to have your marriage announcement in the paper to say how great and how wonderful this person is. Yet really, you know, behind the scenes, things are way different. So you have this image that you portray and it's really hard to even go back. So for me to go back and say, oh, he really wasn't that great, you know, it's difficult and people even use that against you. Voldemort and Kylo Ren and men like that, they have these little minions who who will do do their, you know, will support them unconditionally and blindly because they don't really know them or they turned a, a blind eye to that and it's not happening to them. And so, you know, they may have selfish motivations as well. And I think another reason that we stay in there is this concern for that person. So with both Voldemort and Kylo Ren, I had this sense that if I wasn't there for them, then they may end up taking their own lives. And for me, that was a fear of mine because of my grandpa taking his own life that had basically led me to care for people in this way that was really disabling for me and enabling for other people. And so knowing that fear, knowing that wound, that trauma within me, that in a lot of ways was actually used against me. So that kept me in a relationship with them because of this guilt and the shame that like, if something bad happens to them, that guilt and that shame, that that feeling that if something bad happens to them, then it is my fault. I, I didn't want that. It, it was such a, a fear. So that was actually used against me in a way that kept me in those relationships. And not only that, but Kylo Ren would come home and he would say that I made him so miserable every day that I made him drink himself stupid. And that I was the cause of him feeling so horrible all the time. I was the reason that he drank. He never drank before me. And I was the reason that, that he started to drink and drink himself to this point of stupidity. And then also I was the reason that he wanted to kill himself. I made him feel like he wanted to kill himself every single day when he would come home. He wanted to kill himself just looking at me and looking at, at my face because I am a person who doesn't have a poker face. And even 
trying to hide my emotions. I got to the point where I was, I was trying to hide my emotions. It was just literally, he was trying to suck the very life out of me to the point where I, I like almost forwent my own feelings, my own convictions, my own thoughts, my own value, because I was just in this warped place where I felt like I couldn't really believe myself in this odd way. And so he made me feel not only that he could kill himself, but also that I was the reason that he wanted to kill himself. Being in that place, and I had warned him before that if he ever did say that, like I was going to take action because anytime that any of my friends have have talked to me about suicide, I always reach out and get them support because I don't want to you know, have them feel alone in that. And I don't want them to go without support. And he had told me that the only thing keeping him there was his family. And so I texted his family and just said, Hey, I, I just want you to know that this is what he, what he said, where he's at. And, and I just want you to know so that you can be there to support him and help him through this. And God, he was so enraged because I, I don't think it was honestly even a real thing. I don't think that was even really truly a real threat. But then he was just so pissed at me that I had actually told them that he was going to do this and he felt so humiliated. And then, of course, it's the blame on me, but I was the reason that he wanted to kill himself. And so then, you know, that of course goes to his family and to everybody. And even now on the other side of it and being separated, every single thing was put upon me. It's put upon that victim. When someone comes out of that, it's like that person was crazy. And I know that for me, you know, just literally hearing different things since I've split up where, you know, all of those things you are made to, you are to blame. The victim is to blame. And, but you, you are made, they are always the victim. That is the funny thing about men like that who are abusive and who are so manipulative is that they make themselves out to be the victim. They warp reality in a way that makes them seem like they were misused, they were abused, they were mistreated. And then in reality, it wasn't that way at all. And a lot of times the victims are the quiet ones. They are the ones that that just, they just, it's that relief to finally get out when you do get out, you know? And so I would just definitely caution anyone who has been with a man who acts like they are a victim, as Kylo Ren did. Uh, the girl before me, he said that she is the cause of why he had gotten to be so hard and why he was so to the point and just kind of rude that that she had made him just look at the world differently and that she's the reason why he wasn't kind anymore. And I highly doubt that. Now that I look back on that relationship, I think he's always been the way that he was. And even talking to his friends, it wasn't like there was any significant change there other than he probably became even perhaps a little bit more vindictive and a little bit more angry, but he was already that way. So it's just almost like that just gave him permission to be all the more himself. And the thing with drinking, I found out later, there was a girl that had been dating him before me and had been in a relationship with him and I didn't realize it. I was engaged to him and they had never even broken up. And I find this out years later after I had been separated and getting divorced and uh, that, that he had been with her and but she told me that he drank a lot with her. So he, he drank all the time and he was a big drinker. So there was no truth to the fact that I drove him to drink or I made him to drink himself stupid. But they will use things like that. So you almost feel bad. You know, and there's always, I think another reason why we stay in these relationships is there's this fear of what could happen to us, what could happen to our pets, what could happen to our kids. I say that those relationships... For different reasons, like with Voldemort, I stayed in that that relationship because I was scared of what would happen to my daughter Reagan when I wasn't around to protect her and shield her. And the same thing with my pug Bruce because I didn't know if I would be able to get both dogs and I didn't think I would. I thought I would have to only get one of the two dogs and I was terrified to leave him there. And so I stuck it out. And I think so many times we stick it out for that fear and, and just these veiled threats of that what if and and you know both of those relationships after like there was this ongoing fear there for a while that they could do something really bad to me because there is this vindictive side of them and this side that doesn't if they can't have you nobody else can have you so there's that fear that keeps you within that and then also these false promises that, that you try and believe and they lead you to believe and then they also get you to doubt yourself so there are so many reasons why we stay and I think just taking that that shame away from the victim but also helping people to understand where that comes from because I I understand like you know from you know being in that place myself before of 
thinking, why don't people get out? And then I was in it. So you really can't blame or understand it, I don't think, until you are in it and you understand it for yourself, what it's actually like being in a relationship like that. And one of the crazy things is that I truly, honest to God, did not even know I had been in a domestic violence situation fully until just this revelation I had when I went to the, to speak at this Europals group in New York City as a dog trainer, and I was speaking there with my friend Steve Dale, who is a moderator. And I was there to speak about the importance of people being able to remain with their pets in domestic violence so when they flee, that they don't have to leave their pet behind. And to talk about removing that barrier that keeps people from leaving because of that fear of what's going to happen to their pet and not being able to protect them, and which the abuser absolutely uses. And then also that link between animal abuse and domestic violence and violence towards children, violence towards the spouse, the girlfriend, the boyfriend, so that violence against the significant other. So I was there to speak about that and to really just cheer on the efforts of Europals and their creation of, of these co-housing domestic violence shelters that house both pets and people. And when I was there, there were some victims. There was one lady named Jasmine who was such an inspiration to me for all that she went through with her her little shih tzus. And, and at least one shih tzu, I think her little shih tzu was named Jack. And he would be abused by her abuser. And she essentially stayed in this relationship because of this, because of that fear of what might happen to her dog and how uh, Europals is one of those important organizations that really helps take away that barrier and gets that victim the help that they need. And as I'm listening to her story, it all of a sudden hit me where I'm like, oh my God, that is me. I've been in a domestic violence situation, which is so crazy. And then at that time, I was married to Kyla Wren, and I was in an abusive relationship, and I didn't realize it. I think that so many times we have in our mind what a domestic violence situation is. And to me, it was the woman who had two black eyes that maybe says that she fell down the stairs or has these excuses for these severe injuries or her broken arm. And so to me, what I had endured and what I was currently enduring at the time, I didn't know that it was domestic violence. And yet even still, I still think like, God, even knowing, I've studied so much about this, even knowing now Yes, that is domestic violence, what I went through. And it doesn't have to be this severe physical abuse. Just even that threat of violence is enough in and of itself. The mental abuse, the financial abuse, the emotional torture that you go through, that's all abuse. That's all domestic abuse. You kind of doubt yourself. And in those situations, I almost felt guilty that I had left, which sounds so stupid. But honestly, I did. I felt like I had made this choice. And I think, you know, as a a Christian who was in what was very traditional and more conservative circles of Christians, which I am not around those people anymore for good reason. But when I was around them, there were, there were times when they, like one person just is like, wait, you aren't with your husband. You need to reunite. You need to get back with him. That's not right. Like you need to get back. Other people telling me things like, oh, but you can't, you, you know, unless something happens that that person passes away, it's not right for you to be with anybody else. And even these great organizations uh, through church that were supposed to help you recover, like divorce care classes that I went through, I did not connect with those at all because a lot of it was actually like encouraging in some ways this repair of that bond with that spouse. And I thought, oh, hell no, I'm not going to go back to that. And like to have this freedom and this relief to be away from that person and then to feel like I have some kind of awful tie to them still, oh, that was horrible, like sickening. And I didn't relate in the way that like, you know, at that point, I think I had grieved. I think my grief primarily came during that marriage because I realized this is not what I thought it was. The person I thought I married was never even there. That was a a falsity. That was just an illusion. And the real person is the person that they are now. That bad person, that person who, who is abusive and who is so unkind, that's actually the real them. Like when I realized that and realized they weren't gonna change, that's when I felt my grief. You know, later when it was time to separate, it was just this, oh God, this incredible freedom. Yeah, there was still this little bit of guilt here and there, but man, I was just ready to move forward. But sometimes people can try and pull you back into that. And I think even like 
moralistically or people that will be like, oh, but he was such a good guy. Like, and almost you feel this like shame and blame on yourself that you're like, I can't believe I did that. And it's like on you. And I would have people be like, you need to get back with that husband. Or one of my good friends, even still to this day, when I would go to church with her and she split with her husband who had cheated on her with multiple people and had other abusive tendencies, women would be saying things like to her about, well, you know, maybe he'll change. And, you know, he's trying so hard and he really wants to be back with you. And and he would say things to her like, I can't be with anybody else. You are my everything. I could never, there's no one else in this world for me. And you're all about it. And, you know, you are, you are my world. And I just can't even bear the thought of seeing you with another guy. And, and then she would get this guilt from her children as well after they would be with the husband during their time with him. Or he would tell them things like, oh, yes, your mommy just left us. And, you know, your da- daddy really wants to get back with mommy. And I hope that she'll take him back. And so then the kids would try and, and tell her these things and they blamed it on her because they didn't know the full truth because she was wise enough to not reel them into this whole thing and this whole toxic cycle that, that the husband was doing. I remember telling her, I'm like, do not go back to him. Do not think you, you do not have any tie to him anymore. You are free. You are free. And yes, you will feel, you know, you will always have some connection to him because you are sharing kids with him and you did love him, but there is no tie there. There is no guilt there. There is nothing that is keeping you back or that should hold you back from being with somebody else. And so for her, now she is dating someone else, thank God. And of course, you know, the guy is is doing his thing with uh, how he's always been because they, they really don't change. And, you know, I think she's in a better place, but even still, like, I still have that concern for her because, you know, there's that, that idea of, you know, that you, and I learned this in divorce care, that you have to only date. So when you're dating, you aren't doing anything sexual, like it's all like above board, kind of like what you would think of like in junior high or like supervised dates during high school. And so the problem with that though, is that you don't really get to know that person. So you just get to know them on the surface, but you don't really get to know them. So I've definitely talked with her about having great caution in that and really getting to know someone because, you know, she felt in the same way that I did, both of us in those marriages, we, we rush into it because we felt we were doing the right thing by, you know, saving ourselves for that, that right person that did come along when they did come along. Like, and for her, she was a virgin before she met him. She waited until marriage. And so there was like that, you know, they, they dated for, I think about a year or so before they got married, but she, she only knew this one side of him and she didn't get to know the real him until she was married. And once she was in it, she was in it. And there's always like that stigma about divorce. And so I, I think that as just as a culture, I think we've gotten a lot better about realizing there are so many reasons behind divorce. And I know for myself as a person, my thoughts have evolved so much about not having such a stigma about divorce and and just giving grace. God, it's just, I think for all of us, we just need to give ourselves grace in this situation. And, and for her, you know, that grace to just be free of that man, she has no ties to him anymore. He has no ownership over her. Men like that try to have this awful ownership, like they still own you, like you're a thing. And they they have no ties on you. They have nothing on you. Like you are free of them. And, you know, that, that's that part, you know, with her, I was saying, you know, what, what we need to do. And like, I, I will go with you. You need to have someone with you on every single drop off and pick up of the kids, even have somebody else do it. Because sometimes it's not even about the kids. It's more about you and maintaining that control over you and doing that through the kids. So just remember that a lot of what men like that do, it's about control. And I was even listening to an audiobook on an FBI profiler looking at at different serial killers and rapists and the main reason why why men would do these things including even any of the sexual crimes it wasn't about the sexual nature of it it was about control those men want control and so the women for instance in those situations that that would act like oh I I do want this or they would try and use that tool to be like oh this is mutual a lot of those men didn't actually want that because they want to have that power and that control over that person's emotions. They want them to feel pain. They want them to feel fear. So it's a thing to really consider is, you know, those people, they do, they want control, but they have no control over you. And in my mind, I don't think of myself anymore as 
definitely not a victim. I don't even fully resonate with that thought of being a survivor. For me, I feel like a fighter. And I feel like a fighter because I had to fight my ass off through all of those situations to be where I'm at today and to be in this place where, yeah, I still face hardships and things aren't always easy, but I am so proud of myself. And through this whole journey, you know, those people that tried to literally strip away every single part of me, what they did is they just stripped off the parts that, that you know, maybe weren't the most useful for me. They helped build up that part of me that had that reserve and that resilience. They helped build up my strength. And so without realizing it, instead of disabling me, they were actually empowering me and they made me stronger because of who they were in my life. So in a really weird way, I can truly thank those people who were my abusers and those people who did hold me in those toxic relationships because they are what brought me to that side of myself that is so strong and that is courageous and that believes in myself. And I come at this from a place like where I did not believe in myself at all. And I felt like just literally like dying. I would have wanted that relief of dying because I felt so miserable and I felt so weak. And then today I have so much to live for and I have so much that I can do and that I can share with other people and that strength that I, I can share to help others along that path. And so for, for me, as I think it is important for all of us, is to remember it's not even just about you. It's also about what your story is going to mean to others. And so your strength becomes other strengths. And so when you are feeling weak and you feel like you've lost that resolve and you just can't go on anymore, remember who you're fighting for and what you're fighting for. And, and that's that part of me that is that fighter. And I think that that fighter spirit is really in all of us. Thanks to Mikkel Becker for sharing what it is like to be manipulated by an abusive person. Only by recognizing the warning signs of worse things to come that could be found in an abuser's behavior can we free ourselves before it becomes devastating. I'd like to thank my guests and my listening audience for their support. It is clear our listeners look for and play survivor episodes above all others. They get caught up between the forces of good and evil all the time pulling for the moment a victim becomes a survivor. I am open to other victims and survivors who want to join with me on the When Dating Hurts podcast. We can shine a bright light on the epidemic of dating and domestic violence. We can improve lives and save some innocent people from a lifetime of broken dreams. If you want to tell your victim or survivor story, please contact me at Bill Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. That's Bill Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. Hey guys, I'm Jamie Beebe. And I'm Jake Deptula. We're the hosts of the true crime podcast, Strictly Stalking, brought to you from Podcast One. Each week, Strictly Stalking gives stalking survivors the platform to share their stories in their own words. Do you know why survivors refer to stalking as murder in slow motion? Have you ever felt like you were being hunted by a stranger? Would you know where to turn if a stalker was living in your house and you didn't know? We're bringing you these stories to raise awareness about stalking and give you the resources to know what to do if you or someone you know is being stalked. So tune in to Strictly Stalking each week as we dive into the largely unknown crime of stalking. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite true crime podcast. Podcast.